Welcome. It's uh, good to see you all. Um, especially uh, good to see the YPs back. Um, we're glad you had a great time, and we certainly missed you last week. And also, welcome to you if you're joining us online. I have two announcements. Um, we're really looking forward to camp. Not this week, but next week. Um, but they need some tents to sleep in. So uh, if you're able to come and help put the tents up, they're going to start about 6 o'clock on Friday. And uh, everyone welcome. And then after camp, uh, there's um, a little bit of putting away and tidying up that's needed. Um, so on the Saturday after camp, um, it would be great if you could come down and help tidy up. Um, and if you want to know more about that, talk to Peter Mandy. Uh, but our main aim now is to worship our God. And we're going to start off by singing uh, the, the truth that Jesus is King and he's really worthy of our praise. So when the music starts, let's stand and sing.
So our Bible reading is in two parts, and that's because it's quite long. Um, so I'm going to read the first part, and then Paul's going to read the second bit. Um, we're in Matthew chapter 13, which is on page 986 of the Church Bibles. And we're looking at a number of illustrations that Jesus used. And a challenge for the children is how many different stories can you find, as we read it, that Jesus told? And perhaps for those of you who are a little bit older in the children bracket, see if you can find any that pair together. Okay, so how many stories is Jesus telling? And how many of them make a pair? So I'm going to start reading at the beginning of Matthew chapter 13. And then I'm going to stop at the end of verse 3. And I'm going to start again at verse 24. Because after verse 3, you've got the parable of the sower, which we won't be reading. So Matthew chapter 13 reads like this. The same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach and he told them many things in parables saying, a sower went out to sow. And then we have the record of the parable of the sower. But we're moving on past that to verse 24. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then, do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowd in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden 
since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all who call all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, Every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Thank you. Well, after our next song, we're going to have uh, the children's talk. So if the children would like to come down the front after that, that would be great. I wonder as we come here today, how we're feeling. Are we feeling full of the joys of life, how everything's wonderful for us? Or are we feeling a bit sorry for ourselves? If we're Christians, we have something that is incredibly valuable. We have something that money cannot buy and that can never be destroyed. So we should be coming with thankful, confident hearts that we have a God who loves us and a treasure that never fades away. And we're going to be singing about that in our next song. So when the music starts, let's stand and sing about the fact that our worth is not 
in what I own, but in the one who loved us. Then after that, we've got the children's talk. Sit up. Excellent. Well, I just want to talk to you for a couple of minutes this morning. Now, this week I was thinking about something, but I don't know if you're like me. Maybe not you just yet, but maybe some of the older ones are a bit like this. And I've always been like this since I was really, really young. But if I was ever doing any sort of like football matches or I was doing any running or anything like that. I always liked to watch something that would put me in the mood for it. Any of you ever had anything like that? No, not yet, maybe not that. But I was always like that because I always thought if I've got a big, big football match coming up, I want something that's really, really going to get me up for it. Really, really get me up for it, make me feel really, really, you know, ready for it. And I always liked an underdog story. 
I always liked an underdog story. So one of my favourite films I used to watch when I wanted to sort of like get ready for a big football match was, I used to watch, the, can you put this next slide up please? Was Rocky. Now did any of the other adults here like watching Rocky? Yeah, James, I knew James would. But this one especially was my favourite. It was Rocky IV and Rocky's the little guy and he's fighting a little man there, isn't he? He's not quite so little, is he? He was fighting a very big man and he eventually does beat him. But the moral of the story was he was a real underdog and he won the fight. But when I was watching it the other day, I was thinking something that kept sticking out in my mind and it got said three or four times in the film and it was this question here. Is it worth fighting for? Is it worth fighting for? And I heard this phrase quite a lot when I was growing up too. I had a manager when I played football for my county league team. His name was John Hill, really old guy. He's quite old school. But if we were ever losing a match, he would always come in the change room afterwards and he'd ask each and every single one of us individually, are you going to fight for this? Is it worth fighting for? Are you going to fight for this? Is it worth fighting for? He always asked that question if we were losing. And he knew that it would always get a reaction from us. Because when he said to me, especially how I was, if he said to me, is it worth fighting for? Are you going to fight for this? I always took that quite personally. And I thought to myself, he thinks that I'm really not trying my hardest here. So I'm going to try that little bit extra harder. But I used to use that phrase myself when I went through my life. I used to ask myself all the time, you know, is something worth fighting for? So like with the football, when I got asked that question, is it worth fighting for? I say, yeah, it is. So I'd really try my hardest to win the game or play the best I possibly could to win that. Is it worth fighting for? And then in life, you go on. And I've got a picture here. It's a very funny picture if it comes up. It's Steph. <laughs> this was actually taken yesterday on the big words. Anyone seen the big wheel at Eastbourne? <laughs> Steph was really scared on that. And I had to hold her hand and be really brave for her on that. But when I first got together with Steph, sometimes in relationships, they're not always plain sailing, they go up and they go down, you have good times, you have bad times. And especially one time with me and Steph, she went to move to America, which was thousands of miles away on the other side of the, the world, and she was gone for nearly two years, and sometimes I kept asking myself, is it really worth fighting for this relationship, you know, I only get to see her a few times, you know, is it worth fighting for? And thankfully, I thought to myself, Yes, it really is worth fighting for. And here we are today, I'm married to Steph, we're coming up to 20 years, and I can say to myself, I really thought that was worth fighting for. But it got me thinking, because you're probably sitting there thinking, what's this got to do with the Bible? What's this got to do with Jesus? And it got me thinking about Jesus. And it got me thinking about that question, is it worth fighting for? Now, when I had to fight for a football match, or with, whether it was with Steph, or anything else that happened in my life, it was an individual thing to somebody else. But Jesus, when he fights, he fights for each and every single one of us in here. It's not just one person. He fights for every single person in here. And the amazing thing with Jesus is, because some of the football matches I played when they asked, are you going to fight for it? We didn't win all of them. We didn't win all of them, unfortunately. But the amazing thing with Jesus, the fight that he has fought, he has won. And he's won it for each and every single one of you if you put your trust in him. And you might be thinking, oh, what's this fight then? He fights for our souls because each and every single one of us have got sin in our lives and it needs dealing with and Jesus paid that price. He won the fight 
when he died on the cross for each and, each and every single one of us. And there's a verse up here I want to show you. And it says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to, listen to this bit, to all who have loved his appearing. I love this verse, and I'm not quite there yet, but I'm really praying that at the end of my life, I can say this, I have fought the good fight. Is it worth fighting for? I really pray and hope that it is worth fighting for, because I know it is, and I really hope that I can say this at the end of my life, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race. And look what it says, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. And I know if I fight this fight, the only fight that's worth fighting, I know at the end of my life, I have got an eternity in heaven with Jesus. And I think that's amazing, isn't it? And I love this bit at the end as well. To all who have loved his appearance. So it's to all of you guys. If you love Jesus, if you fight, you can have this as well. And I can tell you one thing. There are many things that you're going to fight for in life, whether it might be when you play football, it might be with relationships, with school, things that you think are really important and worth fighting for, and they are good things. But the only thing in this life that is absolutely priceless to fight for is to fight for Jesus. Because at the end of it, the price is so amazing. So, so amazing. And I love this last verse, and I'm going to show you here. It says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So you might think it might be daunting, a fight, fighting for Jesus, because it is really tricky. The easy part in this is what Jesus has done, because he's done it for us. He's given us a free gift. It's really easy to receive that free gift. The really difficult part, the really hard part, when you really have to fight, is after you've received that gift. Because this world doesn't want you to receive this gift. It wants to go against what Jesus wants. But Jesus tells us we can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. And I'm so happy for this, because in my life, the only fight now that I see really worth fighting is to fight for Jesus. And I want to say at the end of my life, I have fought the good fight, I've run the race, and I can be with Jesus in heaven, which is much better. So I'm going to let you go back to your seats now, but just remember, there are going to be lots of things worth fighting for in this, this world, but the most important thing of all to fight for is to fight for Jesus, because you get the best gift ever at the end of it. Okay, you can go back to your seats now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can come to you, the God who made heaven and earth. The one who is in control of everything, the one who knows everything, and the one who knows each one of us. You know when we stand up, you know when we sit down, you know what we've been thinking this week. Oh Lord, you know what has made us feel guilty. And Lord, we are glad that you tell us that if we confess our sins, you're faithful and you're just to forgive us. And that the blood of your son cleans us completely. So as we come to you now, we are sorry for the things we've done that we should not have done. The things we've said that we should not have said, the thoughts we've had that 
were unkind and selfish and bitter and harsh. And we're really conscious that we haven't lived to love our neighbour like we should have done. And we haven't thought of you, our God, as much as we should have done. But we thank you that your word is true. And we thank you that it's true that for each one of your children, you're looking forward to heaven. You're looking forward to welcoming us into heaven, that there is a crown which will never fade away. Oh Lord, we do thank you for our older friends. We thank you for those who've lived for you. And Lord, we thank you for Rosie Mercer and the way she lived for you all those years of her life. We thank you for the example she had of consistently following you. And Lord, we do pray for the Holman family as they grieve her loss. We pray that you will bless them with your peace, but give them that confidence that their mum and their grandma is much better off now than she ever was in life. And Lord, as we think of her, we think of the other older folk. Oh Lord, as they're feeling their age, as they're, some of them aren't able to get and meet with your people as they always used to, Lord, we pray that you will comfort them, that you will be with them. And Lord, we ask that you'll help John Martin as he takes a service in the home this afternoon. Lord, you know there are challenges with music and things like that. Oh Lord, I pray that they'll know that you're with them and that the frail children of God will know that they are meeting with their Father in heaven and that they will know your blessing. And Lord, we thank you that you're the God of all ages. You're the God of the youngest and of the oldest. And we do thank you that this summer uh, we look forward to your word being shared and taught to many young people and children. Oh Lord, we thank you for all the answered prayers for the YP holiday. Lord, we thank you that they, the young people got together to pray and saw answers to their prayers. And Lord, we pray that that will give them an appetite to pray together more and more and see more answers. Oh Lord, we know that anything in your kingdom needs you to work. Oh Lord, we can't do anything on our own. And we pray that you will bring us to come to you more and more, looking to you to work. And as we look forward to camp, Lord, we pray that it will be marked out by you speaking through your word, that you will be turning people's lives around, that you will be encouraging Christians. And as we look further into the summer and we look forward to the lighthouse, Lord, we pray that you will be with the people who are preparing for that. And Lord, as they will be speaking to people who are less usually in church, Lord, we pray that what is said will be used, will be good seed into good ground. Oh Lord, we, we don't know what's good ground, you do. We know that you can take the weakest of things, the most like, unlikely of events, and use them. 
as well as the most obvious, as well as, oh Lord, you're not limited in any way. So Lord, we pray. And Lord, we pray for your work this summer, whether it's in beach missions up and down the country, whether it's in work that other churches are doing. Lord, we pray that when your truth is spoken, it will change lives. And Lord, we ask for ourselves, as we hear your word, Lord, we pray that it will be obvious that your word has had an effect. Oh Lord, we pray that there will be fruit in our lives so it is obvious to everyone that we know and love you. Oh Lord, we, we pray that our lives will not be weedy lives, lives where people are looking at us and saying, is, is, what sort of person are they? Who are they following? Who do they belong to? Oh Lord, we pray that it will not just be clear to the angels, but it will be clear to those around us that we love you and that we follow you. Oh Lord, we pray that you will help John as he teaches us from your word. We pray that it will be powerful today. And Lord, that we will hear your voice and know your presence. Oh Lord, we do thank you that you're not limited just to the UK, but you're doing great things all over this world. Oh Lord, we thank you for the training that Manuel has been able to enjoy in northern Cyprus. We thank you that he's been of great use there. And Lord, we pray that you'll be with him as he's now back in Africa. Lord, you'll be giving him good opportunities, that you'll keep him faithful to your word, and that he'll be able to see that as he teaches your word, it produces good effects. And Lord, we're sad to hear of liars and cheats and deceivers in the church in northern Cyprus. Oh Lord, as there are congregations that are set up there where leaders are being arrested for deceit and dishonesty. Oh Lord, we, we pray that the evil lies that are being taught will be stopped. But we pray too that it won't be used as a, a reason to stop the message of Christianity. Oh Lord, we pray that the government in Cyprus will be able to distinguish between true and false. They will be able to see the good that your people, your true people bring to that island. And Lord, that doors might be opened. Oh Lord, you know how tricky the situation is there. You know that the country is ruled by Islamic rulers. So we place your word and your work in your hands, knowing that you rule and you reign. And Lord, we do pray that good will come out of this tricky situation. And we pray that your truth will be given free course that it will be taught more and more, that people will see the difference between darkness and light. Oh Lord, we do need you to help us. And Lord, we do pray that you'll be with us. Help us to hear your voice. Help us to worship you today and help us to worship you every day. Lord, we've sung about you being our treasure. Oh Lord, we ask that that will be 
the song of our life as we go from here in every day of the week. Amen. Well, we're going to be praying as we sing our next song, asking that God will speak to us as John brings God's word to us. So when the music starts, let's stand and sing. Jesus is by the sea, something that connects our little summer series in the morning. And the beach is crowded, uh, not with sunbathers, but with listeners. It's probably at the Cove of the Sower, a little area just near Capernaum on Galilee, where the uh, 
there's a natural amphitheatre, and the things that are said can be heard a hundred metres away. It's too crowded for Jesus to be on the shore itself, so he sat in a boat teaching. Pulpits and platforms do vary according to the needs of the situation. What is Jesus doing? Well, he's telling stories. Matthew 13, the chapter we read, is full of stories. It's not definite that they were all in one sitting. Certainly the explanations of some of the stories was given in private to the disciples. But in verse uh, 34, uh, the crowds are still there listening to the parables that Jesus is teaching. So I suspect that most of the stories were said by the sea and possibly all in one sitting. There are quite a few. Did any of the children try and count, guess roughly how many stories are in the chapter? You having a look? Seven, maybe eight if you include the way Jesus uh, closes and winds it up as a, another story. And often we have messages, I've given messages on individual stories, quite a few of them over the years. Famous ones, sower, tares or weeds, the pearl. But this morning we're going to look at the, the whole chapter. I'm hoping we haven't bitten off more than we can chew this morning, but they are all together in one chapter, so I wanted us to take them as a whole. It will help a bit if you know the stories already, uh, but if you don't, you'll, you'll get the main lessons, and maybe you'll want to look at them afterwards and, and catch more of the meaning as you pick up the details, because we obviously can't stop for the details this morning. The king has come. The kingdom is at hand, as Jesus said. We looked at it a couple of weeks ago. But it, there might be some thoughts in our minds. Well, how is this kingdom going to work out? How will it develop? Will it be immediate? Will it be all-embracing, all-encompassing? Will it be worth being part of this kingdom? Where's it all going to end up? And these stories that Jesus told answer some of these questions. They're parables of the, the kingdom. If you glance at the chapter, you'll see the word kingdom dotted up. Twelve times I make it. A good number of the stories, most of them in fact, if you cast your eye around, start off the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like. So they're going to help us answer some questions about the growth of the kingdom of Jesus, the growth of his influence. But they'll also pose some questions for us in response we usually like to look at these things with some personal application. We're going to do that this morning. I think some of them might speak into the situation that we were in, that we're in. 
Now, we're not going to go through all seven in consecutive order, but there are themes coming out of them. Pairs, Tony referred to. And in looking at them, it seemed to me that there were four main themes coming out of these stories that we have in this chapter. So we're going to look at those themes, the stories with them, and a question for us to think about each time. This is the first. Mixed response or mixed responses. The kingdom grows by the word. In verse 19, you have the word of the kingdom. The message from Jesus, the message about Jesus. And uh, the spreading of the word, he says in his first story, is like the, the spreading, the distribution of seed. The seed is good, and it's going to lead to a great crop, but the results en route are mixed, he says. Now, some areas just don't grow things very well, do they? We had in the patch in the middle of our lawn, we tried several things there, different bushes, different flowers. They seemed to start off okay, but then they just sort of withered and, and, and died. I don't know if there's something in the soil so it's now just turfed over. We've given up on that patch. Soils are of different types and lead to different responses. And in Jesus' story, there are four different areas or soil types. There's the path. There's the stony ground. There's the thorny ground. And there's the good soil. And in one, the seed is snatched by the birds. And in another, the sun dries out the plant because it's a rootless shoot. And in another, the brambles choke the growth of what's growing. But there's another area where there is spectacular growth. 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold, when the norm is 10-fold. And the spreading of the message of Jesus receives a mixed response. Some give it no thought. Some show some interest which is extinguished when life gets tough. Some, it leads to interest, but it is strangled by business or work or interests. I think this is a good parable straddled between YP and camp. I know it's been spoken of in the approach to it on a Thursday. It's a good parable for this time. So some will come off these holidays and not bat an eyelid, not think at all about some of the things that they've heard about Jesus. Some will come off keen to be different, but will find it just too hard to carry through in normal life. Some will come off and want to live for Jesus. But friends and phones and film clips just soon fill up life and all the thoughts are forgotten. Of course, it's not just young people. Older ones too will come to a service or do an exploring Christianity course or open their Bibles for a few weeks 
but life's pressures and its distractions kick in and it kicks out the thought of the message. And they find that profits and their property and their pleasures just drown the things that they've heard, like verse 22. As for the one sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. So it leads us to a question this morning. Are we a lasting listener? The message here for us as we distribute the word to expect different reactions, but for us personally, are we a lasting listener? We've heard the word, Is it leading to a response. Is life different? Is it going onwards in our life to produce fruit in line with what Jesus wants? Is there real faith leading to real life change? Are we a lasting listener? There will be some. There will be many. Verse 23 says this. As for what was sown in good soil, this is the one who hears the word, understands it, and he indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, in another thirty. Good soil, responsive, lasting fruit. Are we in that category? The second theme is gradual growth. Gradual growth. So as well as a a mixed response, Jesus says that there will be a gradual response. And often at first a hidden response. The beginnings are, are so small, a Galilean carpenter. A small group of fishermen. Would it come to anything? Jesus and his message and his kingdom. Jesus takes their minds to the garden and to the smallest of garden seeds. The mustard seed. Which produces one of the biggest plants in their gardens. 8 to 12 feet tall, verse 32. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make their nests in in its branches. He takes them to a woman in the kitchen. She has some yeast, some leaven, a, a tiny bit. She hides it in her dough. You can't see it. But the three measures of flour are all infiltrated by the leaven 
and it becomes bread. Verse 33, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. And three measures of flour, if you go by the wang scales of the time, was enough to feed a hundred people. And it was all brought about by this little bit of yeast. I've never made bread. Perhaps you make bread. I'm I'm told that those who make bread, when they put the yeast in, they think, surely that can't be enough. We've got to put more in than that. Just such a tiny little amount. It does so much. And so the effect of Christ's teaching and his message and his word would be gradual and often hidden. It would have small beginnings, but now it's an international tree, if you like, covering the whole world as millions of people are saved through the cross of Christ. Winston Churchill uh, gave an epic speech. If you know much about history and World War II, you probably know of it. It was in the middle of the time known as the Battle of Britain, fought by the RAF planes above the skies here in 1940. The most famous uh, line was a very stirring one, never in the field of... Some of you know the speech, you perhaps got it rolling out of your mind. Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. You can hear Winston Churchill saying it, perhaps. Only he had planned to say slightly different words. According to historian Rupert Hard Davis, And I quote, Churchill and Ismay, that's his chief military assistant, were travelling together in a car in which Winston rehearsed the speech he was to give at the House of Commons on the 20th of August, 1940. When he came to the famous sentence, never in the history of mankind have so many owed so much to so few, Ismay said, what about Jesus and his disciples? Good old pug, said Winston, who immediately changed the wording to never in the field of human conflict rather than never in the field of human history. Realised the mustard seed effect of the kingdom of Jesus where so little had brought so much that he had to narrow down his speech a little bit to conflict rather than history. So the little seed, the little leaven, gradual, big results. Yes, sometimes the speed varies, sometimes the visibility varies in Iran, just hundreds of thousands coming to Christ in recent years, perhaps slower where we are now, but growth, gradual growth. And these stories encourage us to think about if we're a patient worker, a patient worker, if we're concerned for the growth of the kingdom, are we, are you a patient worker? Results are not immediate. Sometimes things are very quiet. 
There's a lot of work goes in and there seems nothing to show for it. You're discouraged by the, the smallness and the, the slowness of the response. Plodded on from year to year and wonder what's come of it. You've befriended, you've invited, you've chatted, you've prepared, you've taught. Remember, God is working his purpose out. The growth of the kingdom is gradual and often hidden. Be a patient worker. Well, what about the individuals that do respond? What do they gain from being in his kingdom? Those who repent and believe, turn to Christ, well, what is it that they receive? Our third theme is priceless value. Priceless value. Maybe like treasure stories are into our famous five, or we're aware of Indiana Jones. Well, Jesus has two treasure stories. Uh, with no banks, uh, wealth in those days was often buried for safekeeping. And one man, Jesus says, stumbles across some treasure in a field. Perhaps the man who originally buried it had died, but the treasure remains. And the, the finder, filled with excitement, must get the deeds of the field. It will be costly, but with a, a big smile on his face, he tracks down the owner of the field, does the deal, and he owns the treasure. The treasure he stumbled across is now his. Our next fellow is into jewels, uh, pearls in fact. And it's his interest, it's his passion, it's pursuit, it's his business probably. And one day he sees it there. The best pearl you could cast your eyes on. And he must have it. And he sells everything else that he's got, all his other jewels, and pays the asking price for the pearl. You know, knowing Jesus is the best treasure. We sung about that. Being right with God, being part of the family of God, knowing that your guilt is washed away, having genuine and real peace, joy and hope, being saved from God's wrath and having the blessing of the Spirit teaching, all of this that comes through Jesus is a great treasure. This is what those in the kingdom have. So the question for us here is, are you a treasure owner? Are you a treasure owner? It may prove costly. They had to give up things to get their treasure. And we will have to give up self-righteousness in order to have his righteousness. We will need to give up self-leadership 
in order to have his leadership. But the cost is well worth the priceless treasure of being in his kingdom. In 2009, Terry Herbert was metal detecting in a cultivated field in Staffordshire. And he found a hoard of 4,600 Anglo-Saxon gold and silver artefacts. Two museums joined together and paid him 3.3 million for the collection. Wouldn't mind being Trevor Herbert in 2009, would you? Like the pearl merchant, he was uh, on the lookout for treasure. I like this story even more, slightly different. In 1992, Eric Laws was using a metal detector in Suffolk to try to find a farmer's lost hammer. He stumbled across the biggest collection of gold and silver Roman coins ever found in the Roman Empire which with all the other bits thrown in that he found was valued at 1.75 million. He found more than a hammer. Now before you put metal detector on your Christmas list, you know that these things are very rare to find. But there is something even more valuable which is much more common. And that is finding Jesus and all that comes through knowing him as your Lord and Saviour. The treasure finder wasn't actually on the lookout in Jesus' story. The pearl merchant was in the business of hunting and had been for a long time. It's clear in the stories, verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. You may have recently banged into the gospel into Christianity. You were looking for a hammer, but you've come across the gospel. You may have been searching with some real deep needs all over the place for years. But either way, through Jesus, you gain priceless treasure when you repent and believe and enter into the kingdom. Well, Professor, Okay, if I miss out on something of value, uh, life can, can carry on as it does. Uh, does it actually make any ultimate difference whether I'm in the kingdom or not? Whether I re repent and believe or not? We come to our last theme. Final separation. Final separation. So much about the kingdom is not plain to the eye in these accounts. People who have uh, turned to Jesus, trusted in Jesus, live alongside others. And you sometimes think, well, there are only 
be any real difference in the long run. Jesus tells tales of a, of a farmer who finds uh, weeds that look like wheat, sometimes called tares, growing amongst his corn. He resists the urge to yank them all up and instead says uh, we should wait for the harvest. Verse 30. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. All sorts of fish are brought together in a fishing vessel, especially in those days when you had a, a net that went out the back and you caught whatever it was uh, uh, found in the area of the sea. Uh, some of it's useful, sellable, passer-onable, other, others of it is uh, no use, no good. So back at the shore, there's some sorting that goes on, there's some separation that happens. Verse 48 When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but they threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age. Jesus tells us what it means. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. People live together now. Their lives are intertwined. Uh, their front doors look no different. They drive the same sort of cars. But what a difference there will be on Judgment Day, Jesus spells out by these stories. And it makes us think of a question. If I can put it like this in keeping with these two stories the weeds and the net. Are we safe minglers? Are we safe minglers? We mingle with everyone else. You go on the same train as others. You're in the same supermarket as others. You go to the same play park as others. You sit in the same common room as others. Our lives are, are in, in, intermingled but at the end, Jesus says, there will be such a big difference. There will be a final separation. Those who are in the kingdom, who have turned to God in repentance, trusted in Christ as their saviour, they're gathered safely into his barn. And those who have not found forgiveness, who have not turned in repentance experience the awful, everlasting judgment of God, it says in these verses. So we mingle with others, your life is mixed among others. But the question is, are you safe? So that when it comes to that point of final separation, you know that you will be wonderfully received into the Father's barn because you've found forgiveness through Jesus Christ? Or will it be the almost unimaginable alternative that Jesus talks about in these verses? 
Don't be fooled by the togetherness now Jesus teaches. There's a coexistence now, but the difference at the end will be so stark. So Jesus tells these stories. Last question. We are safe mingler. These questions that these stories that answer some of the questions about what his kingdom would be like. But which also pose us some questions as we think about them personally. Lasting listener, patient worker, treasure owner, safe mingler. Jesus ends his teaching by saying this in verse 52. Verse 51, have you understood all these things? It's clear parables can be understood in two levels. You can understand the story, the picture, illustration. You can understand the meaning. You may have understood the story, the picture, illustration. But have you understood it spiritually? Have you understood all these things? They chime in with your heart. Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. I'll just pause before we have our final song. Maybe that one of those themes coming through and its question is particularly helpful to you. Just give you a a minute or so just to turn that into a personal prayer before the Lord and then we shall sing our last song. Well, let's turn then to our last song, uh, one which uh, brings out, turns into song, some of the teaching behind some of the stories. It's the song, I cannot tell why he whom angels worship should set his love upon the sons of men, or why a shepherd he should seek the wanderers to bring them back, they know not how or when.
Oh Lord, do help us to know in our hearts that Jesus is the Saviour and that Jesus is the King, that Jesus is our Saviour and that Jesus is our King. Amen.